I wanted to look at Psalm 63. It's a psalm that, uh, that I love. It's um, a song you, many of you have, have memorized probably. Um, it's in so many different songs uh, that you'll recognize the words of it as we read it. And I hope that it going through this morning is encouraging to you. Um, and I've learned so much, despite this being a very familiar psalm, I've learned so much about it this week as, as I've gone through it myself repeatedly. Um, and so I hope to pass some of that on to you this morning and that it will be an encouraging time in your soul as well. Uh, let me pray for us and then I'll read the text and we'll begin. Lord, we do ask for your wisdom um, as we look into your word, for your grace as we behold wonderful things from your word, and for your mercy as we apply it to our life in light of what I, David and, and Jesus just sang. We um, do pray that our souls would be still in the midst of the chaos of the world, the nation's rage, the people plot a vain thing, and yet you in heaven laugh. You're exalted. Your son is on his throne. He reigns over the world and, and wonders why people rebel, wonders why our souls are in turmoil. And so we pray that you would use these words uh, this morning to quiet our souls to cause us to be still before your sovereignty. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. What a contrast this week has given us in our life between the steadfast and fixed hope that believers have and really the chaos and the tumult of the world. If you are foolish enough to to read the news or get your input from the news, you see that our world is in very in many regards in chaos and uh, unprecedented times of, of despair and anxiety. And then the reality of what you perhaps and your family and your friends and their families are experiencing is just so, so different. I know in my household this last two weeks has been more like a vacation than a plague, honestly, <laughs> um, with more time for spend at home with uh, my kids and more time spend at home with my wife. And I know for many of my friends that don't work at the church, but work in the Pentagon or in Capitol Hill or in various places have had the same experience that this has been almost a blessing uh, for them. I've even heard people joke that they wish this kind of thing could be institutionalized, that every year we shut down for a few weeks. Um, 
to bring us back at home and to just give us time with our families. And so in this regard, it is a, it is a joy and I think we receive it as such. We understand that God is sovereign over what our, our world is going through and that he is in control and that he means it for his glory and of course for our good if his glory is our good. We understand that. And yet we also understand that there are those who are going through chaos. There are those who even jokingly say, you know, their trial is spending time at home with their family. We know that there are those who just want out of the the house. They are going stir crazy. And more personally, there are probably those who are just losing Uh, what momentum they have in life, that are wasting their time, that now feel justified in wasting their time and spending these next few weeks in in the wilderness, so to speak, spending these next few weeks not doing anything productive. If we're honest, we see that same tension in our own lives. We see the same pull in our own hearts. Even those who believe that God is sovereign and that God is in sovereign control over this in our own hearts, we see the temptation towards worry. We see the temptation towards anxiety. We see a pull towards despondency. We see how easy it would be for us to waste our time. We know the scripture says to be busy doing the work of the light as long as it is day. And we're so quick to justify that there's no work for us to do, that we can waste our time. You know, a Christian should respond to this kind of conflict and these kind of temptations with confidence and thankfulness, confidence that God is in control, thankfulness that he is good. And yet we know there's a temptation to, to worry and anxiety because this kind of thing demonstrates to us that we are not in control of life. We are not the ones in control of our life. We have a facade of control going on normally. Under normal circumstances, we have convinced ourselves that if we go to the gym somewhat regularly and we do family devotionals somewhat regularly and we are good stewards of our money and we work hard at, at our jobs, that nothing bad will happen to us, that we have the capacity to protect us and to protect our family and that our kids will grow up to love Jesus and we'll get promotions at work and everything will be well and we'll live the American or Christian dream and those two words sometimes become unfortunately synonymous. And then something like this comes along and exposes that we're not in control. We're not in control of how long we live. We're not in control of how healthy we are. And it should make us realize if these things aren't in our control, whose control are they in? And the Christian should be able to answer very quickly, they're in God's control. And that answer should give us confidence and comfort. It should bring peace. But we know that's not often the case because we too can be prone to worry. We too can be prone to irrationality. We can respond to trials with fear. And then when we respond to these kind of trials with fear, we begin to invent things that give us a sense of control. We invent things that if we do this, that, and the other thing, then we'll be safe. I watched a, a video that uh, somebody sent us recently about a, the right way to shop for groceries now to keep this kind of uh, illness, to keep the coronavirus from coming into our, our house. Here's what you need to do when you shop for groceries. And I watched like five minutes of it and I thought, To quote our president here, sometimes the cure can be worse than the disease. (laughs) Leave the groceries in your porch for three days before bringing them in your house. Separate down the table, you know, half for the the groceries that have not been washed yet, half for those that have been put everything in new bags and all this stuff. And my goodness, I just think at the time the raccoons came into my sunroom and they still know how to get in, by the way. (laughs) There's no groceries going to be in our front porch for three days, that's for sure. 
But the temptation behind that kind of thinking is that if you just do everything the right way, then you can be safe. Then you can protect yourself. And of course, if we're being honest, we know there's a bit of that war in our hearts as well. There's a war against worry. At least there ought to be in your hearts a war against worry. There's a war against strife. At least there ought to be a war against strife. You, you should recognize the temptation to worry in your heart and go to battle against it. You should recognize the temptation for strife and anxiety and chaos in your heart. That's a natural tendency in our heart. It produces that kind of conflict and you should see it. It should ping upon your spiritual radar and you see conflict coming from this quadrant and you should engage with that and try to produce a calmness and a stability and a stillness in your heart even in the face of despair and chaos. There should be a war against despondency that happens in your heart. You should see the temptation for despair, the temptation for apathy, the temptation for laziness in your life, and you should go to war against it. And that's why I chose this psalm for this morning, Psalm 63, because this psalm, there's several psalms that show you the war against despondency. There are several psalms where David himself is despondent or David himself is anxious or David himself is in the, the wilderness. But this psalm is just one of the more precious of those psalms because it shows you the, the, the full arc of this, the full rainbow of this, if you will. It starts with him in the wilderness and it ends with him at peace and worship and God on his throne. It ends in the New Testament, really. And so this whole thing brings you from David's exile in the wilderness and you get to walk with him through his heart and you get to see how David goes to war against this kind of temptation and what happens inside of him. Where does his thoughts go? Where does his minds go when he is prone to, to anxiety, where he is prone to despondency? What happens to him that brings him from that wilderness all the way to the pages of the New Testament where the believer is, is still before the Lord. That's why this psalm is so precious to so many people. One commentator says, it is difficult to probe the passionate intensity of this psalm, which has enabled it to be so many different things to so many different people. This is one of those psalms that if, if you read this when you are going through despair, you feel like this psalm was written for you. If you read this when you're skipping on the sunny side of the glory street, you feel like this song was written for you. No matter where you are in the Christian experience, this psalm is personal to you. This is one of the more intricate of all of the Psalms, how it is put together. There is no word out of place in the Psalm, and we know that's true of all of Scripture, of course. There's no word out of place, but this Psalm in particular has a beauty and an intricacy to it where, where there's, <laughs> there's no dangling participles in this. Every, every little passing thought is wrapped up by the end of this Psalm. There is an intense and intricate beauty to it. And so I want to take us this morning along the pages of the psalm from David's desperation to his contentment, from the, the wilderness straight into glory with him. Now this psalm is part of a group of psalms, Psalm 61 to Psalm 68. Those eight psalms go together. The first half of them, all four of them, 61 through 64, are all about David's exile. They're all about David in the wilderness. They're about David being surrounded by enemies. They're not David in a happy place, these first four Psalms. 
They're about him surrounded by his enemies. They're about him lost and not knowing what to do and not knowing how he's going to get back to Jerusalem, by the way. He doesn't know how he's going to become king again. He's been exiled likely by his, his psalm. There's a couple different times in his, his life where he's forced out in the wilderness, some uh, as he's you know, hiding from Saul. It seems like these four are written uh, later on in his life when he is exiled by his son Absalom. And he's forced to flee in disgrace. And you wonder, how can this end well? And then Psalm 65, 6, 7, and 8, they answer these first four Psalms. Those next four Psalms all describe the messianic king reigning in glory. And it, it causes you to zoom out a little bit and realize, you know what? These are, David may be in the wilderness. This particular king of Israel may be in the wilderness. But that's not how the Bible ends. When David wrote these Psalms, he didn't know if that's how his life would end or not. He knew the Davidic covenant. He knew that his son would reign on the throne after him, but he also knew that those were messianic. So he doesn't know how these are gonna end. Psalm 65 through 68 let you know how they're gonna end with the messianic king and he is the one who's reigning. The nations will come from the corners of the earth bringing their gifts to him. They will all pay their homage to him. Instead of journeying to Jerusalem to pay their vows to the, the Davidic king in Israel, there's something more global is going on. And that's how Psalm 65 through 68 answer these first four psalms. What I love, the reason I chose Psalm 63 of all those eight psalms to look at is because you see that same progression inside of Psalm 63. You move from the wilderness to this messianic king reigning over the nations by the end of this psalm. So I want to park here this Sunday and look at this psalm. I think it will become one of your favorites for this season of your life. As long as you're locked down and your self-quarantine lasts, I hope this psalm becomes kind of your verse that fuels you through this time. And to help it do that, I do want to give you an outline this morning. I want to give you three soul truths to pull you out of the wilderness. And I hope these truths will be motivational to you, to guard you, to keep you in a place of productivity, to keep you in a place of confidence in the Lord, to keep you in a place of, of stillness before God and, and work before the, the world. These three truths, I call them three soul truths in here because if you can even look at how the ESV breaks this up, there's three paragraphs in this psalm. It's interesting that all three paragraphs begin with the same word. Nefesh is the Hebrew word. It's the word for soul. Uh, the first paragraph, verse one, my soul thirsts for you. The second paragraph, verse five, my soul will be satisfied. And that paragraph ends, by the way, in verse eight, my soul clings to you. That middle paragraph, verses five through eight, is the kind of the highlight, the center of the psalm, the main point of the psalm, and it's bracketed with the word soul in verse five and eight. The third paragraph, verse nine, those who seek to destroy my, my life, that word in the ESV, life, that's the same word, soul. Those who seek to destroy my nefesh, my soul, they themselves will perish. And so you have three paragraphs here. Each paragraph introduces to you a new point about the soul. The middle paragraph is bracketed with truths about the soul. This is a psalm about your soul. It's a psalm about how to nourish your soul and how to feed your soul to keep your soul from withering in the wilderness. In fact, look at the very beginning of this psalm, the inscription. And if you, if you don't know this, I hope... Uh, to help you here, the inscription of these psalms, not the big, black, bolded words above, you know, my Bible ESV says, my soul thirsts for you. That's not inspired, but the inscription, those little caps that most English translations give, that is inspired. All the inscriptions of the psalms, those that have them, 
And these Psalms do, by the way, 61 through 68. Those inscriptions are inspired. And so we know this is a Psalm of David and we know it was written by him when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's under the inspired, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's how the Psalm begins. It is a wilderness Psalm. Again, the, some commentators say this is when he was running from King Saul. He spent much of his life hiding from him. Other commentators think it's when he was hiding from Absalom, exiled from Jerusalem, forced to leave in disgrace, having his kingdom ripped from his hands. Certainly the low point of almost any king of Judah. But I think that which one of those two exiles is not what's significant here. I think this is a spiritual wilderness. Certainly it was written when he was literally in the actual wilderness. But I think the point of this whole section of Psalms, 61 through 64, is about the spiritual wilderness that you experience when you're going through difficulties in this life. Certainly David was going through a difficulty. His father-in-law was trying to kill him with a spear. His wife had betrayed him. He was certainly in exile in his own country. His son had then violated his own wives and run him out of the, the country in disgrace. He was heckled at, spit at. He'd lost everything. Betrayed by his own family. He's going to write later, if it was an enemy who had betrayed me, then he could endure it. Rather, it was a man like himself, his companion, his close friend, with whom he once had intimate fellowship. He used to walk to worship with his, his own son, and that's the one who turned against him. And so certainly this concept of wilderness is speaking of a spiritual wilderness that David finds himself trapped in. But he doesn't stay there for long. So to help us carve up this psalm, let's jump into these three truths here. The first truth I want to look at, that our soul was made to hunger. Our soul was made to hunger. He begins the psalm by saying, earnestly I seek you, my soul, my nefesh, my spiritual being. It thirsts for you. He describes in verse one, my flesh faints for you. His his flesh here, speaking of nefesh is a spiritual life, his flesh, speaking of his physical existence, it is fainting. In other words, David is speaking here of his physical existence and his spiritual existence, both of them together. He's not uh, a Gnostic here saying only the spiritual is what matters. He recognizes that physically he's in distress, physically he's in the wilderness, physically there is drought, physically there's famine, physically he doesn't know where food or water is going to come from, but spiritually he's reflecting that as well. His spirit is fainting, his soul is thirsty, his flesh is dying, and his soul is mimicking that. The end of verse one, as if it were in a dry and weary land when there is no water. In these exiles, both of them, from Saul and from Absalom, from Saul he went along the, the Dead Sea, from Absalom he'd even crossed over to the other side there of the, the Jordan River. And in both of those places, it is desolate. It is desolate there. It is very difficult to find water. There are a few springs and the springs are coming out of the mountains there and those springs often shift when there's tectonic shifts or when there's even changes in the weather. The springs can disappear from one spot and appear in another spot. That's very common out there. It is very difficult to find water. It is very hot. There's no shade out there. And this is where David finds himself again, both physically and spiritually. He's wasting away. Now, often our response to 
chaos in the world is to describe that it's, you know, it's a natural response to be afraid. It's a natural response to, to fall to fear. That's, it's a normal, natural response. And in a sense, that's true. When you feel threatened, your heart rate races and you feel a natural uh, desire to defend yourself. When you, uh, you know, hear of a run on the grocery store, there's a natural desire to be worried and wonder where your food is coming from. And then you have to recalibrate around the spiritual element and recognize that the Lord provides for his children, that God is in control. And so what should be natural for the believer is to trust the Lord. And so there's a war between our, our fallen flesh that is prone to this kind of tumult in our trusting flesh, our spiritual flesh, our, our understanding of what God is at work and in control and good that should be prone to trust God. But underneath both of them is this desire for confidence in God, this desire for nourishment, this desire to be fed by God. This psalm shows that the the battle that David is fighting here is not against flesh and blood, but it really is against principalities. The battle that is going on in his soul is a battle for trust and confidence in the Lord. This is a psalm that is describing a, a wilderness of spiritual principles where David is, is in a spiritual wilderness because he is hungry and he is thirsty and he is desiring something to feed his soul. And perhaps that's where some of you are this morning. You're desiring something to feed your soul. Your life was good three weeks ago. You had a plan. You had a task list at work. You had a promotion schedule or some of the high school students. You had a date for prom and a plan for your sports season. And now sports are canceled. Prom is canceled. Jobs are canceled. Promotions are put on pause. Everything outside is canceled. <laughs> and notice that David describes this as being in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we think it's natural to respond to those kind of adversities with despair. There's no water, so we panic. There's no food, so we worry. There's no shelter, so we despair. But here it's critical to remember that where there is lack, that shows an instinct that we desire something to fill that lack. Where you see something missing, that is evidence to you that you were programmed to desire that thing. If, if something that you don't care about is missing, you don't notice and you don't respond with worry. If you don't you know, care about something being gone, you don't notice when it is gone. There was a particular toy in our backyard that I didn't care about. Our girls didn't uh, use it anymore. They had outgrown it. And when a flood came through our backyard, the toy was swept away and we found it down the creek Two weeks later, we found it in some bushes down the creek, and I didn't even know it was gone. It wasn't something I cared about, and it was taken away. I didn't notice it was missing. I didn't worry about finding it. Who cares? But when you do notice something that was missing, you do go out and look for it. For example, that same flood once took away our trampoline. I noticed that was missing. <laughs> I was worried about what would happen to it. I had to go fetch it and bring it back. When you notice something is missing, that is evidence, that is fingerprints on your soul that you desire that thing. And so now you need to take even a bigger step back and say, who made the soul? Who programmed us? Certainly some things we desire are sinful and wrong, but certainly some things we desire are good to want. 
And now you have this whole theology of, of fasting even that Jesus brings out in the New Testament, that God made us with a desire to food, uh, for food to show our dependence upon him, that there are things we desire greater than food. God makes our desire for, for intimacy to show us our greater desire to be close to him. God makes our desire for sleep as a constant reminder that we are fallen creatures, that we need a nap and he doesn't. So all these things that are given in our life to desire, they are given from God for a bigger picture. But you need to ask a more pointed question, which is why do we desire meaning in life? Why do we desire significance in life? Why do we desire spiritual stability? Why do we desire to be in a relationship with God? And the answer to those questions is because God made us that way. It is God, Solomon writes, who set eternity in the hearts of mankind. It is God, the scriptures say, that made our souls to desire him. The very fact that we desire meaning in life, the very fact that we desire significance in life is evidence of the Lord's work in our life. You know, animals don't lay up, don't lay awake at night wondering if they're going to make something of their life. (laughs) Your dog is not worried about if he's going to make something of himself. Your cat might be, but that's, that's, the, that's the result of sin right there. You have animals in the world don't care about amounting to anything. But people do. And it's put into our hearts by the Lord. Just as we respond with despair when the fig tree doesn't blossom or there's no fruit on the vines or the produce and the olive tree fail or the fields yield no fruit or the flock be cut off from the fold or there be no herds in the stalls, it is natural to respond with anxiety about that. And Habakkuk says is that those moments that you remember, those things were given to you to drive you to trust the Lord because that is a bigger desire. Your soul was made with a God-shaped hole in it. Our souls recoil at the idea of leading a superficial life. We want strength for our souls. We want food for our spirits. We want a life that means something and that is lived for someone. And when we feel like that is being thwarted, we respond with anxiety, anger, angst, or even spiritual apathy by checking out. But the lack of something only reveals that we were wired by our maker to need that very thing. This is why Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of God. When you see that that is missing, when you look at your life and you realize that I feel like I'm in a spiritual wilderness here. I long stability with the Lord. I long to experience his glory. I long to be in a relationship with him and I don't feel it right now and that makes me anxious. That shows a hole in my heart. When you experience that, Jesus says, blessed are you because now you're on to something. The person who says, I'm not hungry for the Lord, (laughs) there's no blessing for them. The person who says, I'm not missing anything in life when everything gets shut down, there's no blessing for them. The person who says, I need something right now. I'm desperate for the Lord. I'm starving for him. Blessed are those people, Jesus says, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Our soul was made to hunger. And so when you feel yourself being pulled into the wilderness, recognize, spiritually speaking, recognize that when you're being drawn towards the spiritual wilderness, you're being drawn there precisely because God made your soul desirous of something. You can't feed your soul until you first realize that it is hungry. But once you realize it's hungry, 
you can then turn to the second point, that our soul was made to be fed by God's glory. Our soul was made to be fed by God's glory. It was made to delight in the Lord. And this is where the psalm really comes to life. Look at how it begins. Oh God, you are my God. What a personal cry. We sing so many songs like this now in the church, we can very easily lose sight of just what a, a revolutionary declaration that kind of language is. Oh God, you are my God. <laughs> the nations of the world don't talk like that. The pagan religions and the other religions, they don't have a personal relationship with their God. When they say God, <laughs> the this God is my God or that God is my God. They mean it ethnically. They mean it nationalistically. They do not mean it in a personal relationship with God. And that's here what David means. David, though he's in the wilderness, you see in the inscription, though his soul is fainting, though he is famished, he has no problem declaring that his stability will come from his personal relationship with God. Oh God, you are my God. Elohim is the Hebrew word here, just the God of the world. He doesn't use God's covenant name, although anywhere in the psalm, you would expect him to describe God as Yahweh here. But what's interesting in this whole section of Psalms, Psalm 61 through, through 68, you would expect it to be filled with God's covenant name because it's God's covenant king who's in the wilderness here. But instead, David is, I think, intentionally using the broader description, the word that the nations would use for God because he's not talking here about his personal wanderings in the wilderness as the king. He's talking here about his individual, his person at David, his individual desire to be in a relationship with the God, not of Israel, but the God of the world. And so David can say, my heart is in a relationship with God. He is my God. He is the one I thirst for. The God of the nations has a heart towards me and I towards him. This is not a tribal statement. This is a statement against tribalism. This is the kind of relationship that nourishes the soul. And the images in the psalm, of course, are stark, like a traveler off the beaten path, a soul that is wayward in a place where he's faint at the end of his rope. And you think a pilgrim lost in the desert could be fooled by a mirage, but for David here, God is not a mirage. He's real. He's real. He's in a land where there is no water, but David has an unwavering confidence that God is real to him. So he can say in verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life. What a remarkable thing to say. I mean, he's in a place where physical death of starvation or dehydration is a very real danger. There's no geographic shift of here in this whole Psalm. His feet never move an inch. His feet are in the wilderness. The sun is beating down on him. He's on the verge of death in the wilderness. And yet he's here saying, that's okay. I can be still in my soul. I can feed my soul, not with food, not with water. I can feed my soul because your steadfast, your covenant love, your chesed love, your, your graciousness and kindness towards me is better than life. I mean, that's just... Who says that kind of thing? Who says that kind of thing? <laughs> I'm not going to worry about where my food comes from because I know where the Lord is. 
And that's more important to me than my next meal. People don't talk like that. People excuse the way they act out of fear of physical threat. And here David says, your covenant love, it is better than life to me. Better than life. That's why for our scripture reading we read, it's just, I hope it hits you. Matthew 4 verse 3. When Ron read it, the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus was fasting. Jesus was at, in a very real place where physical hunger is his greatest desire. <laughs> he needs food to live. And the devil says, I will give you food so that you live. You can't be the savior if you're dead. So let me give you food and then you can exalt yourself over the nations. That's the progress of the temptation there. Here's food. And Jesus' response is not just, <laughs> you know, my heavenly father told me not to listen to the devil. His response was to come back at him with scripture, first of all, but notice the scripture he chooses. Man's not supposed to live on bread alone. There's some food that's more important, namely every word that comes from God's mouth. Better to have the book than bread. That's Jesus' answer to the devil. And that can come across as, First of all, I think many Americans don't ever appreciate the, just the shocking nature of Jesus' response because we don't ever have to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We don't have to pray, give us this day our daily bread because you know, if we don't have bread for, for two weeks, we panic in our culture. We don't know where our bread is gonna come from in two weeks, time to hit the panic button for Americans. And so we don't get just the shocking nature of what Jesus says here. But it is shocking because Jesus is very much in a culture where you pray, give me today my bread, because if you don't answer it, I don't got it. And here the devil says, you haven't had bread in a month, I can give it to you. And Jesus says, what is more important than bread is the word of God. That's Psalm 63, verse three. Your love is better than life. This is why, this is Philippians 1. This is why a Christian shouldn't fear death. This is why Christians shouldn't fear the plague. Worst case scenario is you die. I mean, it's, it's like the game. You get door one or door two. They're both the grand prize. You get to, to live on life in a, a nice life with your family and your church in this world or you go to heaven. Those are the choices. That's what can happen to you. Those are the options. And David says, you know what? <laughs> Your love is better than life. Paul says, I don't know. Which, which do you choose? Stay here and minister to the, the church. Paul, of course, is single, but for the married people, stay, stay here and minister to the church and to my family or depart and be with glory. How, how do you choose? Well, the text goes on. David's soul has left the wilderness Instead, it's now feasting when you get to verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. That phrase, fat and rich food, that's an idiom to mean a whole spread there. He walks in, he's in the wilderness, his feet are in the wilderness, the sun is on his head, there's no water around, dry and weary land. He closes his eyes and he thinks about God's love and what he sees in front of him is a full Thanksgiving feast. Do you Americanize it here? There's the full table there. You know the kind of Thanksgiving meal you, you go to and there's every conceivable food on the table. That's where David closes his eyes and that's where he is. There's everything is up there for him. Everything's available for him. It's all there. It's not physical food. 
It's what his soul will be fed by. What his soul will be fed by. Notice the change between verse one and verse five. This is why this psalm is so intricate and so precious. Verse one, his soul is thirsty. Verse five, his soul is fed. It is satisfied in verse five. And what got it satisfied? Everything that God provides him, his covenant love. Earlier in verse one, his flesh and spirit were fasting. They were fainting. But now in verse five, they're feasting. What do you, what do you, how do you account for this change? Verse eight answers it. My soul clings to you. That's the change. In verse one, his soul was famished because it was, it was stuck in the wilderness. Verse eight, his soul is no longer famished because it's clinging to the Lord. It's clinging to the Lord. As a married couple clings to one another. It's the same word, by the way. Same word from Genesis. For this reason, the husband will leave his, his parents and cling to his wife. That's, that's this word right here. David says, my soul is clinging to God like a husband will cling to his wife. It's the word that's used for Ruth. When Naomi tells Ruth, go away, Ruth, go away. <laughs> Are you gonna come to Israel and die of starvation? Go away, Ruth. And Orpha goes away and Ruth just grabs onto Naomi's legs. That's this word. I'm not going anywhere, Ruth says. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will be buried, Ruth says. That's this word. My soul clings to you, David says. This is an exile, but his soul will hold on to God and nothing will rip his soul out of God's hands. And then he says at the end of verse eight, your right hand upholds me. Notice in verse one, he's fainting. In verse one, he's falling over. Now in verse eight, he's standing upright. What changed? Well, God's holding him up. God's holding him up. Now, how practically do you get to this place? How practically do you get to the place where your soul can be held by the Lord? How practical, because it's nice here to see the picture of David going from wilderness to steadfastness, of fainting to standing upright, of famine to feasting. Like, or I get the illustration. How do you do that, though? If you're listening this morning and you think, how do I? Okay, I understand that I should go from, from famine to feast. I should go from fainting to standing. How do you do that? Well, this psalm lets you know. And so I want to just kind of pull the car over here on the side of the the Psalm 63 road for a second and talk about two specific ways in this Psalm that it gives you to actually do that, ways you can implement in your own life. And he gives them through two words. The first word is remember. This Psalm is chiastic, which means it's moving towards the middle, which means the main point of the Psalm. You know, American poetry, the main point is the concluding verse, but in Hebrew poetry, the main point is the middle verse here. The middle is verse six. This is where it's all revealed to you. And there's two words that show you how practically this happens. I remember you is the first word, verse six. I remember you. What is he remembering? He's remembering what it's like to be with God's people. He's remembering what it's like to go to the temple, which the tabernacle for David. He's remembering what it was like to, to visit and offer sacrifices. He's remembering what it's like to sing the, the songs that they sang when they went to worship. He's remembering what it's like to pray to the Lord in the congregation because he fills that in in the other Psalms. You know the kind of things he's remembering when he's in the wilderness. That's what he's remembering. How he used to walk 
to the sanctuary with the masses of God's people singing and praying together. That's what he remembers. This is week two. (laughs) Week two for us not being able to meet together. And David says, you have to remember what it was like. Hold on. And not just the corporate element of worshiping together in the church. Oh, that is hugely important. It's important to remember why you want to worship together in the church. I mean, so remember the corporate things. Remember how encouraging it is to be around brothers and sisters in the Lord that you have more in common with than others in your life because you have a shared relationship with Jesus Christ. So remember that. But also remember the personal effect the Lord has had on you, how you were lost in your sin and God saved you. It's helpful to think about where would your life be if you hadn't come to faith in Christ? What would you be doing now? You wouldn't be live streaming this sermon, that's for sure. (laughs) What would you be doing now? Where would you be? If you're watching this with your family, just think, would I have these people around the table if the Lord didn't save me? Where would you be if the Lord didn't rescue you? This is what David is bringing his mind to. Where would David be? The youngest child of a shepherding family? Ruled by the Philistines? I mean, they were going to lose. David would be a slave right now. His family would have lost their sheep, that's for sure. That's not where David is, though. David's the king of Israel. And granted, he's in exile, but he remembers how the Lord rescued him. He remembers that kind of thing. Have an Ebenezer in your life. Have a monument in your life where you think, this is what God did for me. I remember how precious fellowship is. I remember how great it is to pray. I mean, I miss the Sunday evening services where we'd get into small groups and pray for our church and pray for our missionaries and pray for each other. It's good to miss that. It's better to remember it, to remember what it's like, to remember the Lord's kindness towards us. That's the first thing he does. You've got to remember those things. The second thing, he says, you meditate. The second part of verse six, I meditate on you. Meditate is the, this is not the normal word for meditate that's used in the Psalms. The normal word for meditate means to kind of chew on something. That's the word that's used all over Psalm 119. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here, it's a more unusual word, and it, it means really to mutter. It's, the same. it's a word that's usually used of animals that are muttering to themselves, is the, the word. Um, I I'm trying to picture an animal that's muttering to himself, but there's a Hebrew word for it, and this be it. And it's also the word that's used in Psalm 1, by the way, the righteous person. He doesn't walk with the wicked, but he takes his pleasure from the law of the Lord and on it, and that's the word from Psalm 1. He meditates day and night. That's this word here again. So David is saying, I'm laying up late at night, and I am muttering to myself. And it's a word that is used when it's used in other places, not for animals. So the animal category, when it's used not of animals, it's always connected to God's word. He's muttering God's words to himself. He's going over the word of God in his heart. He's remembering God's kindness to him and muttering about the word of God to himself. Our culture has just butchered the word meditate. In our culture, the word meditate means to empty yourself of your thoughts. You meditate when you quiet your mind and you empty your heart of all conscious thoughts. That's where you're really meditating. Not the right word. 
This word is content filled. You have content. It's not emptiness. It's content. And the content is the word of God. So how do you meditate on the word of God? How practically do you meditate on the word of God? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Especially with this time of lockdown in your life. You should have more time to, I mean, three weeks ago, your excuse for not meditating on God's word, I know what your excuse was. Three weeks ago, your excuse for not spending more time reading your Bible was that you were too busy. <laughs> you don't have that excuse anymore. So now what is your excuse? Do you have too much to watch on Netflix? So let me just ask you some questions. These questions aren't in Psalm 63, but they're, they're legitimate inferences. Okay, so this is less preaching right now and more family time. The car is pulled over on the side of the road, remember? So this is, this is family time here. Ask yourself these questions. Are you right now, in your, just take the last week of your life, are you reading more about the coronavirus than you are about the Bible? Are you more concerned about how to wash your hands than you are about what you're reading in the scripture? I'm not implying that it is foolish to wash your hands the proper way. Of course not. Wash your hands the proper way. But just ask yourself, just this practical question, which category of things are you reading more about? Let me phrase it differently in case you're listening to this sermon after the lockdown is over. Are you more concerned about how you care for your physical body than you are for your soul? Do you spend more time this week concerned about keeping yourself healthy either by having one hand to pick up the groceries and one hand to set it down? More time to keeping yourself healthy, worried about the right way to do this and that. More time keeping yourself healthy, going to the gym, exercising, than you do reading God's word. I mean, it's just a question. Do you spend more time exercising your physical body than your soul? Not that it's wrong to exercise your physical body. Of course not. Paul says, hey, training your body has little value. And I just, I hold on to the word little right there. It's so, such a great word. It's got a little value. You didn't say no value. It's got a little value. What should you spend more time on? Under lockdown right now, are you Netflixing your way through this coronavirus? Or are you psalming your way through the lockdown? Are you reading God's word? Are you seizing this as an opportunity to grow in godliness? You know, for families, are you doing family devotionals together? It's great to have family movie night. We, my family, we do, we do family movie nights right now. We watch ridiculous Disney stuff together. What a shame it would be if we didn't have time for family devotionals because we had to watch the next episode of whatever. Seize this opportunity as an opportunity to grow in godliness. Now, how do you actually meditate on the word of God? Well, you have to start by reading it. You can't meditate on a closed Bible. Open it and read it. And when you're reading something in the Bible, Here's what I like to do. I like to read the same book over and over and over again for like a week. So I don't, I, you know, I've worked my way through the whole Bible a few times now, but that's not the way I'm normally reading my Bible now. Now I like to read the same thing over and over and over again. I'll read the book of Ephesians every day for a week. At the end of the book of Ephesians, I feel like I am getting it. I'll read Psalms 61 through 68 every day for the week. 
There are eight Psalms. I've read it every day. I, I have my mind around what's there now. And what I'll do if I'm doing that with a book is I'll print it off. I'll copy the text from my, my Bible app. I'll put it in a Word document. I'll print it off. And then I'll draw on it. I'll color it. I'll highlight it. I highlight everything about God's salvation and love for us. I highlight that in blue. Everything that's like a promise to believe, I highlight it in yellow. Everything that's a threat or a warning, I circle in red. And so at the end of the week, I have this thing highlighted and marked up and I know what's there. That doesn't take a long time. Imagine what you would get if you wanted to put a long time into it. You would get even more. Ask yourself, is there a promise to believe in this text? Is there a command to do in this text? Is that promise in other places? Is this command in other places? And if it is, what happens to people who obey it? What happens to people who disobey it? How do these other stories play out and chase those down? You observe, interpret, and apply. And I hope you're doing that this week. I hope you're doing that this week. Don't waste this time, but meditate on God's goodness so that, and here's the phrase, you wake up in the middle of the night and you can think about God's word. Right now you wake up in the middle of the night and you're worried about 10,000 things. Ah, wake up in the middle of the night and think about God's word. That's what David's doing here. He's waking up in the middle of the night in the wilderness and he's thinking about God's promises to him. He's thinking about his relationship with the Lord. In the night watches, the night watchmen are out patrolling, likely looking for him. And he instead is meditating, muttering God's word to himself. Do you want to have David's confidence in the wilderness? Then you have to have David's love for the word of God. You can't have David's steadfastness and stability if you don't have his love for the word. There's a cause and effect relationship here. So often we want to have the stability that David has without the devotion to David's God. But they go together. Our soul was made to hunger. Our soul was fed by God's glory. And thirdly, our soul responds with worship. I love that there's no service we have to clear out of here too to get through. So my only time constraint here this morning is that we have to be ready for next week's live stream. So I got plenty of time. Thirdly, our soul responds with worship. It was made to hunger for God. It's fed by God's glory, and our soul responds to that with actual worship towards the Lord. The most common thing in Psalm 63 as you go through this, certainly you notice this, is just the worship. It's all over this Psalm. Verse three, he says, my lips will praise you. Verse four, I will bless you. I will lift my hands. Verse five, my mouth will praise you. Verse seven, I will sing for joy. I mean, it's everywhere here. He is singing out here. It's almost funny. He can't hold it back. All through this wilderness psalm is, is singing. He's stuck out there in the wilderness. The, the nomadic shepherds are looking at him going, this guy is in exile. His life is falling apart. His family has turned on him. His father-in-law is trying to kill him with a spear. His wife betrayed him. His son is trying to murder him. He's on self-quarantine and he's skipping around singing the Psalms. <laughs> it's remarkable that nowhere in the Psalm, did you notice this? Nowhere in the Psalm does David ask for anything. He never asks for deliverance. He never asks for rescue. He doesn't ask for anything. He just praises God for who he is. His diminished circumstances don't produce a diminished worship service. 
Instead, it's a heart that just fills with songs, a mouth that releases those songs, a soul that clings to God while he's singing those songs. All the worldlings would buckle under this kind of pressure, but not David, not those who believe God is good. And I want to challenge you with that, brothers and sisters, this week. All your neighbors might buckle under the pressure of the society. All your neighbors might finally cave under all just the despair and the hopelessness and the confusion about what's going on, but not you, not you. Because you're anchored to God and to his word. Well, that's the first two-thirds of the psalm. This last paragraph, though, lets you know that what David has experienced, it is an exclusive experience. It is not universal. Not everybody will experience this kind of relationship because there are those that do not have that. They can't say verse one, oh God, you are my God. They have not turned from their sins and trusted the Savior. And you see these people in verse nine, These are why David's in exile, by the way. It's not out of left field. That's why he's in the wilderness. Verse nine, there are those who seek to destroy his life. They will go down to the depths of the earth. The Hebrew word Sheol. They will go to Sheol. They're gonna go to the place where souls go when they die and there's not gonna be deliverance for them. There's not gonna be mercy for them. Their souls will be forgotten, abandoned into eternal torment. And their bodies will be forgotten also. They're paired together. Their souls will be cast into hell. Meanwhile, verse 10, their bodies will be a portion for the jackals. In other words, nobody's going to bury them. Their souls go to the grave. And Jesus, when Jesus goes to rescue the souls of the righteous from the grave, will not rescue their souls. Their souls will be lost in the grave forever to a, a an eternity of torment. Their bodies experience the same thing on earth. Their bodies are just abandoned on the earth. Nobody buries them. They get eaten by the dogs. I think obviously this is speaking spiritually. It's speaking metaphorically here of what happens to their bodies. He's not literally saying that everybody who tried to kill him would be eaten by jackals. He's making a statement here that if your relationship is not in with the Lord, if you don't have confidence in God and his goodness, you have in front of you a life that will be forgotten and an eternity that will be of torment. That's the reality. This is why believers can have confidence because that's not our future. Our future is a rescue by God and an eternity of worship. So we certainly should have stability in this life. Now, the question that Psalms 61 through 64 all ask, that's not answered until Psalm 65 and the rest is, how can that be? How can the king, David, be in the wilderness and be hunted by everybody and him saying it's all going to be okay because they're on their way to hell and I'm on my way to glory? And you think, how? And you just get a little window here, a little foreshadowing what's going to take place in Psalm 65 through 68 and verse 11. The king will rejoice in God. David's not talking about himself. He shifted here. He is the king, but he's not talking about himself. Because he would never say this, all who swear by him will exalt. David's not commanding people to swear by him. This is all about the Lord. This is you take your eyes off of this world and you put your eyes on the eternal God and the eternal king. Again, Psalm 65 through 68 fills out what king we're talking about here. You, you take your eyes off of this world and you put them on God's king. And this, of course, is Jesus, the, David's greater son. David's son will be the king after him, Solomon, who will 
split the kingdom. David's other sons will be king after him, some of whom will go into exile, some of them will worship false gods, and eventually the whole kingdom of Judah will come to an end. But David's real son, his greater son, Jesus Christ, he is the real king. Recognizes the king when he's presented in the temple, exalted as the king through his teaching and preaching ministry, crowned as the king when they put the the thorns on his head at his death. They even put a sign on him that says, behold, the king of the Jews. They meant it ironically, but Pilate was correct. What is written is written, it shall stand. Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. And he can accomplish all of this. Really, it's foreshadowed in a different place in the Back up in verse seven. I want you to just draw your eyes up to verse seven again. You have been my help in the shadow of your wings. I'll sing for joy. Shadow of your wings. It's the angels in the temple. The angels in the tabernacle. Their, their wings over the Ark of the Covenant where every year the priest would splatter blood on the Ark of the Covenant. The angels have their wings over it. And David says, because of what's happening in the temple, I have confidence. Now David doesn't know all these connections here, but his hope is in the fact that blood will be spilt for him underneath the wings of the angels. The psalm ends then in verse 11 by saying the king who's able to do this will rejoice in God. So David's hope is in a king that will shed blood for people like David. And of course, this is what Jesus does in leading a sinless life, the perfect life. Being crowned as the king, crucified as our substitute. He dies the death that we deserved. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He too was put into exile. He too was chased out of Israel to save his own life when he was a boy. He was chased out of Israel by mobs later on in his life to do ministry among the Gentiles. And ultimately when he returns, they killed him. And yet verses nine through 11 are so true. Those who turned against Jesus Christ, they will be lost in hell. But the real king, our Lord Jesus, he will rejoice in God and everybody who swears by him will rejoice. Jesus ties up Psalm 63 in John's gospel, John 7, where he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, scripture teaches that living waters will flow from within them. Jesus' disciples ask him, where did you get water? (laughs) I mean, and he says, I have water you don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What strength there is from that to say we don't need to worry about the water and the food of this world. We have water, rivers of living water from the ministry of the Holy Spirit and all who swear by King Jesus will rejoice. All the mouths of liars, those that deny Jesus Christ and deny his kingship, they will be stopped. Lord, we're thankful that you have a future for us that may involve physical death, but it certainly does not involve spiritual death for those that have put their faith in you. So I pray this morning for anyone listening to this message that they would see the chaos in the world around them, see the despondency and the temptations in their own heart, that we confess those as sin and turn towards you and trust you and believe you and hold fast to you. I confess in my own life this week, going back and forth between being upset about circumstances and despondent over circumstances to fighting for a confidence that you are good, that you are in control. I'm thankful that you hear my prayers, that you establish my soul, 
as upon a rock because I, I swear to, to the Lord. May that be all of our confessions, that we swear to you, we swear allegiance to you, our true king. We honor you and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.